Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show all about building and investing in companies, featuring interviews with startup founders, investors, and operators, sharing the best insights into the world of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, you have Charlie O'Donnell, founder and general partner of Brooklyn Bridge Ventures, a firm that manages around $30 million across three funds. Charlie was on the original team at Union Square Ventures, and he was also previously at First Round Capital prior to starting Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. And he has nearly two decades worth of experience in the New York tech startup scene. And in this episode, we talk all about that, going through his journey through venture, what he's doing Brooklyn Bridge Ventures now, talk about tech ecosystems a little bit and why he's bullish on one of them, which you'll hear about a bit later. All of that and much, much more in this episode. As always, these show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Various Search, a boutique legal recruiting firm that uses a bespoke approach to fill legal department roles from general counsel to paralegal. They have a particular focus on startups and growing tech companies. This focus allows them to provide individualized in-depth attention to both their clients and their searches. They focus solely on placing in-house candidates, which allows them to give their clients a bespoke experience in filling their legal needs. Their matchmaking approach ensures that clients are paired with candidates who not only have great credentials, but who are also a good cultural fit for a growing company. You can learn more about Various Search at VariousSearch.com. That's V-A-R-I-A Search.com. Again, VariousSearch.com. Without further ado, here is Charlie O'Donnell, founder and general partner of Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. Charlie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate you taking the time to come on and a lot to discuss. And for people who don't really know, you know, Brooklyn Bridge Ventures, how did this all get started? I'm curious. Well, let's see. My parents met when they were 21 and 17. <laughs> um, I came along quite a quite a ways later. There's a there's an 18 year age gap between me and my oldest brother, but uh, I don't think that's what we meant. Um, so my career started. I guess as a high school intern um, at the General Motors Pension Fund, I was working on the institutional finance side in New York. Very lucky internship, bounced around to a couple of different asset classes. So I think just historically, I come from a portfolio perspective. I'm not a deal guy, I'm not a former banker. And I'm used to looking at risk across a portfolio. I'm used to looking at asset classes. And so GM was one of the largest limited partners in all of the, not only top tier venture funds, but private equity, mezzanine debt, uh, distressed, all, all of this other stuff. And so, you know, I learned how the asset class worked in relation to others well before, you know, I ever did my first deal. And I think that's probably a little little different than most folks. I got pitched in 04 by a New York-based venture capital fund. Almost didn't even take the meeting because really, who was doing tech in New York <laughs> in, in, in 04? That seemed like a really dumb idea. Yep. Turned out um, a couple of really smart guys, Brad Burnham and, and Fred Wilson from Union Square Ventures, pounded the table for GM to make an investment in that fund. Uh, turned out to be too small because we were used to writing $50 million checks. And that was 
$125 million fund. So it, it, it didn't quite work for us. So I wound up joining them, actually. I emailed Fred and I said, well, what does somebody as a junior person in venture even do? Like, what is, what is the job? Do I need a computer science degree? Do I need an MBA? And he just wrote back like one line, basically, you want to come and find out? And that was it. What made you say yes to that? You're just curious about it or what was it, what was it about it? Yeah, I, um, I'd been at GM for four years full time after my four years at college. And I think I was ready for something new. And I think what I realized was that I found new technology and the creation of new companies much more interesting than I found buying something old, doing some financial engineering, levering it up, you know, the sort of private equity approach, which by the way, is a great way to make a lot of money and own a franchise, uh, major league sports franchise, but it's just not for me. I mean, I wouldn't mind the sports franchise, but, uh, <laughs> would it be terrible? I, I like, I like tech. I like the creation of innovative things and, and the, and the people involved, well, most of the people involved in it, the, certainly the founders. Um, and I, it, that just felt like a good fit. And I, you know, I had always thought that most of the entrepreneurship was happening in sort of Silicon Valley and Boston area. And so as a lifelong New Yorker, I was very happy to get the opportunity to do venture in New York. And so that was particularly important to me. With that as well. So you were, I'm going to say at USV for a little bit of time. Also first round when helped to open their New York office. From those experiences then, deciding to launch your own fund versus going the partner route, continuing on with somewhere there. Like, how did you think through that process of, hey, I want to have my own thing? I'm just curious at the time, like, what were you thinking when it was 2012, you launched your fund? But what were you thinking around that with having your own fund versus joining someone else? Yeah, well, first of all, it has to be an opening, right? And And so, you know, at the time, first round had sort of, four partners, three principal level people, two, two of whom had already sort of been promised partner tracks and sort of came before me. And so it's not, you know, it's not NEA, right? It's, it's, it's not a 26 partner, $3 billion fund, right? You just can't divide up that fund size any, any further. So a lot of partnership opportunities sort of right place, right time. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people have created partnership opportunities by starting something, right? Um, although in hindsight, to be honest, I don't think I was a particularly great teammate. I am much more the kind of person who, you know, if I fall in love with a deal and, and, and want to, you know, write a check, I, I'm happy to listen to coworkers, but I don't want them out voting <laughs> yeah. me. Um, and I'm very opinionated and I, I'm sure anybody else at first round could, could tell you that actually what's really funny is, um, I did not realize that I was a little bit of an unplanned hire. Um, and somebody else was looking at a deal that I really did not like at all. And so we had this sort of, you know, pre pre slack, we had this sort of reply all team thread and somebody was like, Hey, has ever anybody seen this one company? And, and I wrote like the seven reasons why we shouldn't do this deal to everyone, not knowing 
that half of the people in the company didn't even know who I was yet. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was a part of the hiring offer that Josh Koppelman neglected to tell me. <laughs> That, you know, he was like, hey, I think we need a guy in New York. And I offered this guy this job. And, and I, you know, the team really didn't have an opportunity to sort of fully, fully vet me. And and that was their first impression of me. And, and so <laughs> it's just really funny to think about. Oh, my God. Funny to go back to that. So I'm much better. Still. Yeah. So you, you knew kind of that that's how you operate. That's what you're going to do. So obviously a route would be to mm-hmm. raise a fund. How did it go with that first fund? Everyone's different. I'm curious with the first fund. How How was that process for you, Charlie? I probably went six months before I realized that I had screwed up the fundraising process. I overspent time with two whales that I was looking to sort of anchor the fund. One of them flaked out in a really kind of unprofessional way. And the other just wasn't on the same timeline that I was. They, they wound up committing, but like months and months later. And so I'd been, you know, spending all of my time with these two anchors and I failed to think of it as a sales process, right? Typical sales process. You need to just fill the funnel with enough leads and, and score those leads appropriately and understand their buying process and the decision-making and and all of that sort of stuff. And so I, you know, like, like every founder has done in fundraising, went straight to that Google sheet (laughs) name, average check size, chance of close, and and rebuilt that from scratch and said, I just need names. I just need contacts. I need leads. And so I started really turning over every rock at that point. And it was um, probably about three or four months later that I had my first close. But um, I wound up with 50 investors in that first fund. I was check taking checks of 25s and 50s and 100s and and uh, you know got a couple of bigger checks too, which was great. Uh, but it was it wasn't an easy run because my network did not really fit well with who would invest in a venture fund. I knew a lot of people who were in the industry. Yeah. Like most partners at VC funds don't invest in other people's Not VC funds. If anything, funds, yeah. they're yeah, like if anything, they're over-invested in venture and need to go look for other stuff, right? And then historically, I had a lot of institutional contacts. And so it does me no good to know the team at New York State P- Teachers Pension Fund when I'm out raising an eight to ten million dollar fund, because yeah. they can't even think in check sizes less than like twenty-five million bucks. So my network wasn't a good fit and I'm not, you know, I, I wasn't born into having those kinds of connections. You know, um, my dad was a fireman. My mom worked in the school system. So like we didn't, I didn't have any contacts growing up that were like high net worth individuals that could be fund investors. Yeah. So how did you approach it from a perspective of which ones you were going to target in terms of your LPs for that first fund, knowing you kind of, you kind of have it both sides of the spectrum, but not the sweet spot. How'd you end up going about that? Cause I know other people who are fund managers are aspiring to are curious as well. Just numbers, just pure numbers. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I did, which you can't do anymore um, is downloaded all of the addresses from my LinkedIn address book. And I just emailed everybody. I was just like, Hey, I'm raising this fund. I have like, you know, an anchor tenant. Um, but but I think the key to that email actually was that I didn't start out asking for something. 
basically said, hey, I'm raising this fund. We're doing a close. If you know startups that are looking for funding, here's the kind of startup I'm looking for. If you know talent looking to join a startup, that's exactly what they're going to do with the money after I fund them. So, you know, like, please send talent my way. And oh, by the way, the reason why people invest in my fund is because a lot of them are kind of like inconsistent angel investors. They like the idea of being angel investors, but they're just doing other stuff yeah. full time. and They want a connection to the market or just the money doesn't work out for them. Right. That Like, you know, maybe they could see themselves putting a hundred grand to work, but not at a time. Yeah. You know, the idea of dividing it across 25 or 30 or 35 companies makes a lot more sense to them, especially to count on somebody who is doing it full time and just has the time to do the work. And then I, I offered co-invest. I was basically like, hey, if I bring in a deal and you like it, like, yeah, c- come in side by side, you know, put in your 25K next to the 50K you put in the fund or whatever. So in, in some ways, I was like, a cheap analyst at a family office, right? If you sort of consider, oh, I put a hundred grand or 200 grand to work over three or four years, I'm less expensive than a person that you could hire to go bring you 34 deals. And not only that, that's all some cost. At least I'm putting the money into deals. Like you're going to get the money back and then right. some. So it's essentially a free person. And so that was, that was the approach I took. And when I realized that um, before I took a meeting, I needed people to answer yes to three questions. Um, do you want to be in the asset class? Because venture capital is sort of a screwball sector. And, and, and you know, if, if someone doesn't understand why two people in an idea is worth $4 million, you, they're never going to get there. Yeah. So, like, it's not even worth trying to explain it. Um, are they okay with the partnership structure? Like I get to make the decisions. This is not a uh, an angel club. This is not a brokerage. Like I bring you deals. Like you commit. I do 30 deals. 29 of them could suck and one of them could return multiples of the fund. Yeah. And you can't pull your money out after the first 29, right? And then does the size work? right? Both on the low end and the high end, right? Like if you only have 10 grand to put to work, that doesn't work for me. And if you can only think in check sizes of $10 million a time, that doesn't work for you. So, um, but if I could get somebody to say yes to meeting the criteria for those three questions, then I had a very high hit rate in taking the meeting, mostly because um, I had two exits at that point. I, I spent, and this is just kind of luck. I, I did you know, nine deals at first round capital. And within the two years that I was there, basically, I had two exits already Jeez. for more than than the money that we had put in across all nine. So um, that was almost like, it almost felt like being a double O agent, right? Like you have to get your two kills <laughs> in before you're, you're given official double O status. And so, you know, while it wasn't a very long track record, it did give the appearance that I was sort of fishing in the right holes and did give me, the false sense of security that I knew what the hell I was doing too. <laughs> which which can be tricky in many ways if you have that. <laughs> For sure. From that, staying in just a similar lane before we can move to some other questions, compare that first fundraise to your second one, your second fund. As I heard, it was uh, a lot less time. It was a lot different. Like, How did that go the second one comparably? 
Yeah, second one was a lot easier. Second one, uh, $15 million fund. So the first one was eight and change. Second one was 15. I think I closed on 10 or 11 of it in the first close. Uh, most people re-upped for more. Um, the only drop-offs were like, I had somebody who was like an oil and gas family office and the price of oil and gas had fallen off the table since they first made an investment. So they just like weren't, you know, had nothing to do with me. Um, and so, yeah, it was kind of easy, uh, partly because, you know, two, three years in, I had done what I said I was going to do. I had shown that I could get good deal flow. There was no expectation that anything would have sold by then. And um, and we had some markups and we had some companies that looked like they were good sort of right out of the gate. That's a huge help. With that, you mentioned that obviously you had good deal flow, you said. So how, how are you approaching things at that point in time in terms of your deal sourcing after that first fund and going into the second fund or just overall more broadly? I'm curious as to what your approach has been. I have, have definitely some questions around the content community side of things I want to get into, but with the deal sourcing, how did that go for you? I think if you're going to go out and raise a fund, I think it's a mistake to raise a fund if you don't already have deal flow. The idea that you're going to like invent a stream of deal flow like like after doing this like you're gonna get this pool of money and be like okay now i gotta go find stuff like you gotta be in the flow of it i, I remember when i at first joined first round capital 2009 i went to the new york tech meetup which was like a big thing at the time and somebody came up to me and told me about their company said hey i want to meet up with you i'm starting this thing I said, well, I don't know if that's the kind of deal the first round would do, but yeah, I'm happy to talk to you about it. And they were like, what do you mean? What, what does first round have to do with it? I was like, well, I'm assuming that you're talking to me because I just joined first round. I did announce it actually. And they're like, oh no, that's great for you. I, I, I hadn't seen that. No, I just have been following your blog for a while and just wanted to get your feedback on stuff. And so I was like, wow, that's, that's cool. Like I have deal flow, even though I'm not at a VC fund. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important too, because look, if you're just going in as like a junior person at a VC fund, it never makes sense to be the person being pitched when you're the junior person. Like deals are always going to go to the partners, right? So if you're not someone that is already counted on, to evaluate stuff, to be helpful to companies or whatever, I think it's going to be very hard to get deal flow. Like you're not going to join first round capital and then suddenly get your own deal flow. In New York, the deal flow is going to go to Haley. Like why would I pitch the junior person if I could just pitch the partner who I already yeah. know, right? Um, and on your own, it's even harder. Um, so, you know, I, I, I wasn't necessarily... I was just kind of doing my community thing that I had just done for years of, you know, trying to do cool events and that were informative and interesting to me. I mean, in, in some way it's kind of funny because like a lot of this stuff is completely selfish. Like I put up an event and I find people that I want to ask questions to yeah. most of the time because most panel moderators suck. And I'm just like, I can't sit in the audience and listen to you miss the three most important questions that everybody wants to know from this yep. person. I'm just going to go interview this person myself. 
And if a hundred people want to watch, awesome. Wonderful. Great. You know, <laughs> that if that's the price of admission for getting you to talk to me, then then fine. Um you know, it's just like this mayoral podcast that I just started. People are there's great feedback um on this podcast that called the the schlep to city hall on the the New York city mayoral race. And people are like, Oh, this is so great. You're providing this enormous value. No, I had to figure out which candidate I like. Exactly. I mean, if you want to listen, great. But uh, this is, this is my excuse to sort of, um, you know, get, get this stuff, uh, get this stuff kind of done. So I'm just sort of doing my, my thing. Well, here. it's interesting to imagine that because it is something, even whether it be podcasting or video interviews, whatever there's, there is a way where you obviously you get access to people you want to talk to, which is still novel enough for people to say yes. <laughs> and if you can do that, then you can talk to a wide variety of very smart people in different industries. And I think you're going to see more brands, different companies and everything as well doing this, even from like a sales perspective. I've seen some companies do this as part of their strategy because it makes a lot of sense when you look at like how they get access to people and then they're providing value in some way, but they just want to talk to them anyways and start that relationship. And then obviously has a lot of value in the back end for people who are also are curious about those things. And I had someone, um, uh, Alec from Riskcast Solutions, had mentioned that he joined an event of yours last year, right, like early in the pandemic, where you did a, a online event pretty early on that he said was phenomenal. And how did that come about in the pandemic when you were thinking about doing an event? You had a number of different speakers on. How did you go about that process? I'm just curious. For example, yeah. So April 16th of last year we were supposed to host a full day conference called the pre-series A offsite, which is we go to all of the seed stage investors. We go find the best companies that have yet to raise an A. We get like a dozen series A VCs and we do this sort of full day, very interactive, like small groups, panels, meals. It's, it's a, it's a really fun day. Um, and, and, and everybody really likes it. We were scheduled to do that on April 16th at the retro TWA hotel in JFK airport, which is this like, you know, walk into the 1960s kind of place. Very cool place. I hope to visit it one day. Clearly that was not going to happen. And we, we canceled it. And then we thought about it and we're like, you know, everyone had blocked this off on their calendars everybody still wants all of the content. Why don't we just do this? And we, we took time to, to mix it up. Right. Um, I think one thing that people who create content don't do enough is, is to be empathetic to their audience. I mean, I I can't, I, I can't tell you night after night. I'll, drop into clubhouse and I'm like, no one cares about the audience <laughs> because this, there are 50 people up on the stage. I'm here for five minutes. I have gotten no yeah. value because it's basically like two dudes filibustering about Bitcoin. What, what, yeah. what, how no one would ever design a conversation like this if they were optimizing for audience benefit. Um, I remember back in the day, I gave a talk at South by Southwest as part of a panel. And I'm a very heavy handed moderator. So I had um, Beth Ferreira, 
who is now at First Mark, my friend Emily Hickey, who had been an entrepreneur and was a consultant. Um, I think Alexis Junja also was there. And um, it might have been Sarah Tavola well as well. It might have been the four of them. And I very highly choreographed the panel. I was like, okay, you two are answering this question. You two are answering this other question. Like, we are not doing the four people answer it and the last two people go, well, I don't have anything more to add, but I'll just talk for two minutes too, yeah. right? And it was quick. And we probably got through 15 questions on the panel. It was sharp. I was, you, you know, keeping everybody's answer short. And the first person to ask a question from the audience was like, hey, I've been to a lot of panels and most of them haven't been that good, but this is by far the best panel I've been to. And it was totally worth the price of coming to this conference. And I was like, <laughs> Winner. Yeah, nailed it. Got him. Nailed it, right? Because, I mean, we took a lot of time to just be thoughtful about how to, how to transmit usefulness to the audience. And I just don't think a lot of people are, are doing that and just imagining like, hey, someone's just like sitting there staring at a screen. How do you make this interesting for them? Yeah, there's a lot of effort when people, if people aren't podcasting or haven't done it before and then just decide to start clubhouse rooms and stuff, they don't realize like how much it is like preparation that goes into a really good interview in terms of being prepared, in terms of understanding how the flow is going to go versus again, someone jumping into a random spot in a clubhouse room where they also don't know the context beforehand and where this is going to go. Like it's, it's a lot more difficult to, to pull off and it is, it is tricky. It's challenging. I've done, I've hosted maybe once uh, and it was like, it was, it was good only because we had prepared ahead of time, I think. And it was a small group on purpose and we kind of like prepped them for it almost. And so that was something that was helpful on that. And on that note, I know you had mentioned being with obviously USV and Fred Wilson and all the blogging he's done for many years, but you've also blogged for many years. I saw some of your earlier posts too, basically using it as Twitter before Twitter. And how do you look at content today in terms of your blogging and how you approach that as part of being a VC? Yeah. So, um, Fred's blog is only three months older than mine, actually. Um, he's clearly been a lot more successful <laughs> at it than, than, than I have. Um, for me, I, again, like in, in, in a kind of selfish way, I use it to think, right? I think writing is a form of processing information. Yeah. And so, you know, for example, like I just wrote a piece about bias in the fundraising process, which, you know, could be a very touchy and difficult topic for a generic straight white guy to be talking about. And but I've spent a lot of time thinking and processing over various aspects of this. And it's not an accident that the post was fairly long and, and went through, you know, um, you know, a bunch of time to sort of think through it and, and, and write it. And, and I think that that processing really helps me think about things and, and look, it also accomplishes something for the audience too, right? Because it gives them an insight into how I approach stuff. So somebody could read that and say like, oh, this is the kind of person I either want on my cap table or that I don't want, yeah. right? And and I think that's that's helpful for them. And and also like, look, there's there's a, you know, 
content marketing aspect where, you know, somebody retweet, retweets it, says it's good. Because the, the other hard thing about doing the really, really early stage is the discoverability of startups. Yeah. There's no, I can't download PitchBook or Crunchbase to go find companies. Like I just have to make myself findable, which is kind of the challenge, right? Yeah. It's like producing uh, the inbound. Yeah, yeah. It's about creating creating that inbound and saying, hey, here's here's the thing about fundraising, right? And and so, for example, like a post like that, you know, there may be some super well connected. Uh, female founder or black founder who's like, you know, this VC thing, this is not built for me. What a pain in the ass. Like, I'm not, I'm not even going to bother. I'm just going to, you know, raise money from people I know and skip the whole VC process because it sounds awful and it sounds like it's not built for me. Right. Then one of their friends retweets that post, they go reading and go, Oh, all right. Well, maybe this guy's not half bad. Maybe, you know, maybe that might be a worthwhile conversation and that's getting a deal that nobody else gets, um, which is, which is important to me because I, like, I really want the opportunity to get a look at everything coming out of New York. Yeah. I mean, especially except being that early stage, that's an opportunity if you are creating the content around it to have people come to you and then you're the first person they think of, cause you're going to also be the first check. So you need to be that. Right. Within that as well, and one of the things you had written about, which I was curious about, you said, you know, why colleges and universities should be scared of on deck. And at Vitalize Venture Group, we're interested in future of learning, future of work. So I'm curious on your thoughts of where kind of future of, of learning is going. Where do you think this is kind of evolving? Obviously, you just wrote about it, so I'm curious as what you think about that now. Yeah, I think you're seeing a lot of um, reconstitution of education. And, and, and work and the different parts and components of work, right? Like there's, there's all sorts of things that have gotten smushed together over the years that don't make sense. Like why in a first world country does healthcare get attached to your employment? Like that doesn't, like there's no, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, right? Those things should be separate and we can debate how to pay for it later, but like, if I decide to have three jobs instead of one, like healthcare shouldn't be harder. Yeah. Um, much in the same way that, um, you know, why some of the the values of a college education, for example. Um, look, I had an absolutely terrific experience being on Fordham's campus up in the Bronx, and and loved my college experience, but. I don't need the Fordham alumni network to be my network, right? Yeah. Like, and, and so, you know, what, what is the degree, right? What is the content in some ways, like, you know, high quality content is available everywhere. Like I could just be a voracious reader. Like I could just yeah. be somebody who, you know, buys a bunch of classes, frankly, much cheaper. Yeah. Or even free. Right. Like I just, <laughs> Than, than a degree, right? In some ways, I'm paying for aspects of it. It's like the unbundling, right? It's it's like I'm paying for things like, you know, Fordham's basketball team's kind of credit, to be honest. <laughs> like, why am, I, why am I paying for the overhead of maintaining that gym as part of my degree? Yeah. I'd like them to be better, but, you know. Um, and I think that's happening with networks, too. Like, the access to people 
is no longer something that is stuck in these silos and it's it's viable right i mean that's essentially what on deck and some of these other programs is and you know the other thing is the the speed at which this stuff is changing right like it used to be people saying well you know why do i have to go to college why can't i just join the teal fellows or the the be a y combinator person or whatever but then we realized that some of those organizations and this happens i think a lot for you know sort of non-white male founders where people are like yeah but those particular groups are just reflective of existing society structures too so you know what it'd just be easier for me to just buy this off the shelf kind of thing <laughs> of, of like you know i got some money i'm willing to buy it. like i'll just I'll just buy my way in. I don't need somebody sort of vetting me, gatekeeping me. Like I'm willing to do the work. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just sort of pay for the network. It's an exchange of value. It's clean. It's crisp. I get what I'm getting. I get what you're supposed to be providing me. Um, and, I, and I think you're going to see like more of that kind of thing where it's just like straightforward and there's there's aren't these gatekeepers around it yeah it's gonna be interesting to see how how that changes because to your point i mean it's it can be free or very cheap to get the actual information they're even in the connection side of things you have like you see like on deck obviously even like, like trends or other networks that are creating these communities around different areas of interest for people where you can get access to people in whatever industry or career you want essentially without having to have a certain degree or anything like that so there's like this democratization of sorts with that. And so it's interesting how companies will evolve and kind of serve these different markets. And one of the things I want to go back to, I know you mentioned like New York City early on getting to the venture scene, this was 20 years ago, a bit different than now. And you obviously have watched this kind of ecosystem of New York evolve. How do you think that, I mean, see now it's like in a remote world, so it's a little bit different. How do you look at the ecosystems, uh, whether it be, you know, whether it be Austin or Miami or any one of these, like, what goes into an actual startup ecosystem that can be successful? What does it need? And what have you seen, at least from a New York standpoint? You know, it's interesting because we've, it's, it's very hard to compare them like for like, sure. right? You have Silicon Valley that has had a multi-generational head start, yeah. right? And, um, and, and a head start at a time where, you know, look, there was a time in this country where like to build a new tech, you had to have a lab, you had to have a Stanford or MIT like laboratory, and there was sort of limited access to equipment or processing or all of that sort of stuff. Um, the Xerox park days and, and, and whatnot. Yeah. That has been, you know, much more spread out and democratized. It is not a necessary component. Um, then you, you kind of need obviously money and money with a risk appetite, which is important. And I think that's one of the reasons why, for example, like Seattle has historically not taken off to the extent that you would imagine. Um, there are a lot of people in Seattle who have made money at larger companies, right? There's like Microsoft money and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Right. And, um, they weren't necessarily the people that started that company. And so, you know, you've got a ton of engineers, you've got lots of tech money, yeah. um, but it necessarily isn't, it hasn't been risk-taking capital uh, as much and sort of a, you know, it's Pacific Northwest, sort of different pace of life and, and you know, kind of all of that 
sort of thing. Um, you know, historically in New York, I would say you had, you definitely had risk capital, right? Because all the Wall Street and all the you know, people willing to make bets right. on things. You didn't have the tech itself or sort of, you know, kind of embedded in, in big places. But I think New York has probably benefited more than other other city from the democratization of tech because now it's like i don't know you can build this anywhere where do you want to live and historically lots of people have wanted to live in new york because new york is a great place to live yeah. right and some so, people don't even leave you know, you know, for more than three weeks in their entire life <laughs> <laughs> right right and so you know please i haven't left my house <laughs> touche um but uh, but yeah, if, now it sort of matters more if you can be close to customers and close to talent. And, you know, the thing about being close to talent, as we've seen in the pandemic, is just talent's willing to move around. Yeah. And that is both a positive and a negative for certain cities, right? Historically, I've never seen a company have trouble recruiting somebody to come live in New York. Uh, as hard in New York as it is a place to live sure. in some ways, right? No one's ever said, I don't want to, I don't want to try it out at least and, 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 and check it out. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, New York has benefited from that in a, in a big way. Um, and I think, you know, some, you know, other aspects, you mentioned Austin, right. You know, not to be overly uh, political, but, I find it very hard to be in a place where, you know, you go up a couple of levels of elected officials and you've got policies that result in just the government not doing what it's supposed to in just terms of taking care of people. Yeah. Right. Like Austin's a very liberal place, but it's still in a red state. Yeah. And, you know, it's still in a state where, you know, you basically the fear of, of government oversight is such that, you know, we create a grid with no resiliency and we just don't even, you know, it doesn't seem to be much care when it comes to, you know, well, what, what happens if, you know, the power starts to fail or what happens when, you know, prices get jacked up and and all of that sort of stuff. I I think like you're seeing more and more a lot of people saying like, I don't want to live in a place like that, which is, by the way, if I were to be bullish on any startup scene right now, yeah. it'd probably be Atlanta. Ooh, yes. Atlanta's done some great things I mean, recently. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, because then I'd sort of say like, hey, that state is trending in a in a way where more and more people are deciding that they want to live in a society and infrastructure that takes care of, that everybody takes care of everybody else, right? Yeah. That is, is empathetic. Um, it's an incredibly diverse place, um, which I think just increases the amount of uh, uh, creativity and, and diversity of perspective and, and, you know, the breadth of ideas and all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, um, yeah, I'd be, I'd be looking at, and it's, and look, it's a real size city too. I yeah. mean, like, <laughs> you know, there are other places where like, Oh yeah, you know, come to this place. And it's like, yeah, there's not that many people yeah. like, you know, there's not 
density. Like Atlanta's a real city. Yeah, it's an definitely. And then you look at some of those, like I said, companies recently, like Calendly getting a huge funding and other similar ones as well. And it's it's interesting to see what they're doing there as well. And I know we're we're out of time here, so I want to be respectful of your time. But for people wanting to get in touch with you, founders want to get in touch with you, what's the easiest way for them? I know you you allow some some cold outreach, which is great. What's the best way for them to get in contact with you, Charlie? Yeah, I think that's just um that's the easiest way is just direct outreach. Um, I'm a big fan of Calendly, by the way. I've become an obsessive That's Calendly great. user. Um, the one, the, if, if anybody's listening, um, I wish I could, they could do permissioned uh, requests because I currently have a, like I, I use another company called uh, OnceHub where people can request time. And that's the sort of best way to pitch me. I have a little calendar link on my site. And you can say, hey, I'd like to meet and talk to you about this particular thing. Um, Calendly is basically like they're in. They're like there. when they're in, you get the link and you're, you're in, right? And that, that doesn't really work for a VC. Um, and then I would say the other thing I would say is just be persistent. Um, I give away money for a living. I mean, I hope to get something back, but there's just a lot of email, right? And I feel really bad when... Somebody's like, oh, I pitched you and you didn't get back to me. And I was like, dude, sometimes there's just a lot of email and there's not enough hours in the day. And like, please just tweet at me or, you know, um, just send a new note again and just be like, hey, you know, there's a really specific reason why I'm pitching you. I hope that you saw this kind of thing because I really do try and get back to everyone. But it is it's not the easiest thing in the world. And I only invest in New York, too. So like I'm. I'm seeing a lot of things and only in one city. I can imagine like what a national VC, the amount of flow that they would be. Yeah, if you're open to everything, it's a lot different. And I think it's it's a little bit tough just to hammer that point home. Like if founders don't understand on the VC side, like how many in, inbound requests and how much is coming in, it's it's hard to even fathom it. But like even from like just getting into it, and even like the more of the platform side for me right now, it's like already getting requests from very early in. It's like if you're actually making decisions on the partner level and only the front, like I can only imagine how many more emails and then you have meetings all day. So then your emails are stacked to the night. So it's like, just follow up, <laughs> follow up again. It'll right, be fine. Right. <laughs> but I appreciate that. I will make sure to link up everything in the show notes as well, Charlie, for people so they can find you. But thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.